Tooth Issue for All Women. Oi, and indeed oi, welcome to this week's Sunday Chops. It's Mickey, aka Stola Flump, and I was lucky enough to catch up with one of my favourite interviews, Dr. Sabrina Cohen Hatton. Not only is Sab seriously impressive on paper, Chief Fire Officer, Big Issue Ambassador, Psychologist, Author, Champion of Doggos, she's also bloody lovely in person. If you're a long-time listener, you've probably heard us talk to Sab before. We first chatted to her back in 2018, for no other reason than Hannah thought a woman making headway in the predominantly male fire service would make a cracking guest. And boy, did she ever. Sabrina came on the podcast again the following year to talk about her experiences of living homeless and selling the big issue as a teenager. And, as if we needed an excuse to get her on the pod again, Sab's got a new book out that is bang up standard issues alley. The gender bias, the barriers that hold women back and how to break them, explores a serious amount of glass, ceilings, cliffs, breadlines, thwarting women's potential and delaying equality being reached. I can't recommend it more. It is a fascinating, well-researched read that covers a whole lot of ground. Sabrina and I also cover a lot of ground in this interview, from women biased against women to the modesty trap to dogs. There is quite a lot about dogs and an actual dog, one that explains my new Stola Flump pseudonym. Hope you enjoyed me chatting to Sabrina as much as I enjoyed chatting to Sabrina. I am joined on the Zoom by one of our favourites and one of the busiest women I know, Dr Sabrina Cohen-Hatton, Chief Fire Officer, Big Issue Ambassador, award-winning academic and author of excellent new book, The Gender Bias. Sab, hello! Hi! It is so good to see you, Mickey. Always a pleasure, my love. Also, I did forget dog psychologist there. How are your massive <laughs> canine babies? Oh, oh. I am so obsessed with them. It's unreal. But, you know, I think there's a really serious thing to that because I think it goes back to my time when I experienced homelessness because I had a little dog, Menace, who was a little stray dog, and I feel like I was a stray girl. And so we found each other and it worked. And I know there are lots of people out there who have a view on people experiencing homelessness and whether they should or shouldn't have pets. And I had lots of people expressing their very firm opinions to me when I had him saying, you know, you shouldn't have a dog. You can't even look after yourself. But that dog was the only social and emotional connection I had at a time when I was otherwise completely isolated. He meant the world to me. So I think on a really profoundly deep-seated level, dogs are incredibly important to me. And I've actually just started being an ambassador for this amazing charity called Street Vet, who do outreach work with vets who volunteer and they go out and help people who are experiencing homelessness with their dogs and give free care to their dogs when they need it. And they're super. So a big shout out to Street Vet. They are amazing. They're such a good charity. And also, I'm glad you've managed to squeeze something else on your plate. Well done, mate. Well done. (laughs) Now, Sabrina, nothing makes you realise how much a book about the gender bias is needed, like the response to a woman writing a book about the gender bias. Yes. Yes, indeed. Indeed. It's hilarious, isn't it? Because very often the people that are shouting the loudest about it not being necessary are ironically the ones shouting the loudest, which if it wasn't that necessary and you didn't need it and you weren't that bothered, why are you shouting at me? It's very funny. But um, yeah, I did. Uh, I, I put a few posts up on Twitter about it because on International Women's Day, I did uh, an interview on Women's Hour And the trolling I got was atrocious, absolutely atrocious. People saying you're just a tick box higher quota. 
accusing me of being privileged, which is kind of hilarious given I grew up on the streets. But, you know, there we go. We've all got our own view. And I think my particular favourite was Kevin, who clearly put a lot of thought into his response when someone else was uh, writing something supportive or he just put underneath, after a shag are you, mate? So, yeah, thank you for that contribution, Kevin. You clearly thought very hard about that. Yeah. Only the ones that are clean enough for me to share, frankly, it was terrible. So there is something very ironic, I think, about um, people saying there's no such thing as gender bias and then shouting very misogynistic things at me in capital letters on social media. (laughs) Sadly, I don't think they're going to read the book when really they fucking should. But it kind of almost answers the question I'm about to ask you, which is, what made you write this book? (laughs) Well, it wasn't shouty people on Twitter because I just tend to block them and mute them so leave them shouting in a void. But the reason I did write this book is because so many times I've experienced something and I felt like it's been really different to the way that the guy stood next to me might have experienced the same thing. And I honestly thought it was just me. But I've realised that it's actually not just me. I'll give you an example. Me and my husband are both firefighters, have been since we we met in the fire service. And one day we were at a party and we were chatting to a couple and they said, what do you do? And he said, oh, I'm a firefighter. And of course they were like, oh, wow, that's amazing. Gosh, you must be so brave. God, tell us all about it. And then Mike got a bit coy and embarrassed and went, yeah, um, so is my wife, actually. In fact, she's my boss's 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 boss. And they went, what? You? And I was like, mm, yeah, hi. And they're like, but you don't look like a firefighter. It's like, oh, okay, charming. And then they said, but isn't it a bit risky? What about your kids? At which point we kind of politely left to refresh our glasses. <laughs> and I said to Mike afterwards, look, do you get that a lot? Because that's basically the kind of response I always get. And he said, never in 25 years have I ever had a response like that. And I said, wow, that's amazing. And that showed me in Technicolor the way that both women and men are viewed very differently for doing the same thing. And in this case, I think there's something in there about the way that people respond to women and men taking risks. And I don't know if you remember a climber called Alison Hargreaves, who sadly died while summiting K2. Well, she was a professional climber. She was absolutely incredible. And I think a couple of weeks before, she'd actually summited Everest without any bottled oxygen. So she's very, very accomplished. But she died on her way down after reaching the summit in a storm along with a number of other climbers. And she was absolutely lamblasted in the press for uh, because she was a mother and talking about how selfish she was and that it was you know some kind of foolishness doing this kind of risky activity when he had kids at home but none of the dads that were parents that were died had that same coverage so there is something about how men and women are viewed differently for things like taking risk and who are then rewarded by society differently for those things as well as a number of other things and and I talk about this a lot in the book and one of the things that I really looked into, I have, I have a whole chapter that's dedicated to risk, but I also have a whole chapter that's dedicated to the way that people respond to women who are in traditionally male spaces, mm-hmm. male dominated jobs, because I am as a firefighter, I have been since I was 18. That's where I've grown up. And it was fascinating, you know, because there are some studies which show that If you challenge people's assumptions in some way, if you challenge their gender norms or their idea of what that job looks like even, 
they can experience something um, that psychologists term the backlash effect. So they'll view you negatively as a result, or they'll feel negatively about you. They might not know why. They might not be thinking, oh, you're a woman, so I feel really bad about you. But that's what it's linked to. And there was this study that looked at, um, uh, basically gave people a load of different packs about fictitious employees and they were absolutely matched. They were identical, but half had women's names and half had men's names. And they had some background information about the employee and then their performance sheets for the year. And people were asked to rate them and to make a couple of different judgments on them. And the women, despite having exactly the same information as the matched men, the women were less likely to be put forward for development opportunities they were less likely to be recommended as suitable for senior positions and they were more likely to be judged as dishonest self-promoting and untrustworthy than the men despite having zero information talking about their actions or any of their anything that would give that kind of indication away and the only difference is that they were told that they were women who were successful in a male-dominated job Oh, it's incredible, isn't it? And by incredible, I mean fucking fury making. And, you know, we are a huge fan of strong women, wherever that strength might lie on this podcast. And, you know, rightly so. Women bigging up women and all of that, right? But it's absolutely not the case that those biases you've just been chatting about against women are purely from men, is it? There's a line in the book, which is amazing. It says, just because women are on the receiving end doesn't make us any less likely to be dishing it out. Yeah, absolutely. And there was this one study that um, looked at, have you heard of something called the implicit association test? I think I have because it's in your book. Excellent. Excellent. (laughs) Well, in that case, it'll be well up on there. But for those listeners that might not be familiar, the implicit association test basically looks at your unconscious biases and people that take it basically a couple of words flash up on the screen and it calculates how long it takes for you to match them together and the difference might only be milliseconds but it basically shows that you're either categorizing something together so it's been filed together you have an unconscious bias towards those concepts or you're kind of it takes longer because your brain goes oh no 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 that goes in that file and despite 83% of respondents being women and 86% of respondents identifying as feminists, people still had an unconscious bias that linked women with support roles and men with leadership. And these are people who would consciously and rationally argue vehemently against that, yet at an unconscious level, because of all of the things, all of the messages that we've absorbed from society, this conditioning that we've had since we were, you know, big enough to absorb information, that's all created these files that we have in our heads. And basically, we categorize information that's similar together in the same space. And if something is similar, it gets encoded even more easily. So you kind of pad out that file even more. And those files become our shortcuts. There are biases, if you like. There are go-to frames of reference for navigating a really dynamically changing world quickly. Um, it's, it's like a heuristic that we draw on to get through the world and not need to process loads of information and have overload. But that's also where stereotypes sit. And that's also where our biases sit. So it's not right to say none of us have biases. Frankly, we all do, whether we're women, men or or whoever. I think what's important to me is that we're all a bit more open to recognising it in ourselves 
and then challenging ourselves and doing something about it. Because I firmly believe the vast majority of people are good people. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, today, today I'm going to be really biased. Well, some might, but not many people. (laughs) Nobody raises their child to go, I'm going to raise you to have as many biases as I can possibly do. And you know what? None of us created this rule book. We've all inherited it. These are the social norms that become our preconceptions. It becomes the way that people respond. It becomes the way people see something as normal. And that becomes our frame of reference to the world. And that's where our biases come from. So I think it's I think it's better that we kind of take this shame thing away from biases and go, do you know what? That's how we categorize information. And that's how we navigate the world. So actually, if we can step back from the point where we're we're all really ashamed of biases and recognise that it's just the way that our brains are wired. But if we want to change it, we need to do something about it. And that's where we go, Okay, what do I do now? I didn't realise I did that. Hang on, let me think about it. How can I do something differently in the future? And if we all started doing that tomorrow, then I think we'd have a very different environment that we'd be raising our own children in. Absolutely. And I did love that in the book, obviously, the stuff that made me want to bang my head against a brick wall, a brick wall I am very familiar with, tear my hair out, all of that. But there are also these dollops of hope of how we can shift these biases, how we can change things and how we can all be involved in that, which is, you know, probably going to be the thing that kills us. But I like that it's there. So, Sam, have you seen the film Anchorman? Yes, right, I have. Okay. I feel like that scene where Ron is in the phone box, that glass case of emotion, that is women, right? We're just surrounded <laughs> by glass. The glass ceiling, the glass cliff, the glass breadline. It's just everywhere, mm-hmm. isn't it? Yeah. And we can't smash through any of those glass barriers without injury. There's always a cost. There's always a toll, isn't there? Yeah, we're always getting a glass splinter somewhere in, inappropriate. <laughs> Absolutely. And look, they're all shit. They're all detrimental to women. But I wanted to focus on the glass breadline because I can't help but think that that is the worst of a bad bunch. And also probably the one that gets the least light shone upon it. So please, could you explain to the listeners in case they don't know what the glass breadline is? Absolutely. So the glass bread line is something that I looked at that is essentially um, an invisible barrier of social norms and preconceptions that keeps people trapped in poverty. And the glass bread line exists for everybody, women and men, for sure. But women are disproportionately impacted in very specific ways. So I was looking at ONS data and it really spoke to me because it showed that If you're on free school meals, by the time you're 25, only 18% of women will earn more than the national living wage compared to 28% of men. Frankly, both are far too low, but there's something happening that's keeping women trapped under there. And then when I unpack that a bit more, and of course, coming from my background of experiencing homelessness, it really matters to me. Women are overrepresented in low wage sectors in low wage employment to the point where 17% of women are in low paid employment compared to 11% of men yet that 11% of men on average are paid 3% more for doing exactly the same jobs as the women I know I know I know it's awful 
So what's happening? Why are women being trapped there? And when I started to look at the research and I started to look at the data and I started to look at the societal impacts of things, there's something that's really specific here. If you're a woman and you're a single mother, you're five times more likely to be in poverty than a married couple who have children. And you're twice as likely as a single dad to be in poverty. So what is it then? What is it that's trapping you there? And there's something for me about how difficult it is when you're in those low wage employments to actually get flexible working, affordable childcare that allows you to have the space not only to do your job, but to also grow, which is really difficult. And if you think about those low wage jobs, the hours are mandatory, pretty much. You take what you've got on offer. And if you don't have anybody around you, if you don't have a support network, you don't have alternatives for your for things like childcare so it can become really problematic and really challenging and ultimately poverty isn't just difficult for for you emotionally or difficult for the fact that you don't have stuff there there are health outcomes associated with this poverty is an indicator of low educational attainment not not your aptitude not your iq but your socioeconomic status makes you less likely to achieve an a or above at gcse which i found fascinating but it's also linked with poor health outcomes so the lancet published a study that showed that living in poverty will knock around 2.1 years off your life which is about the equivalent of smoking mm. which is incredible isn't it yeah. it's incredible So you can see how all of these challenges sit around there. And then being poor is expensive. If you're on a prepayment meter for electricity, it costs more. If something breaks, you haven't got a financial financial cushion to pay for a new washing machine or something like that. You can't access lower rates of interest. So you're doing those kind of rental things, which are even more expensive again. And even after the the Financial Conduct Authority stepped in and put some more safeguards in place, you're still looking at about paying twice as much for something than you would be paying for it. So, you know, it's expensive and it's probably no surprise that I think it was about 61% of people who get into debt for necessities are women. You know, and these are everyday necessities. This isn't a new car. This isn't a holiday somewhere. This is just making ends meet. So actually, it's incredibly difficult to break through that glass bread line. And it shouldn't be down to the people who are experiencing being trapped underneath it to be the ones that have to smash through it. Because frankly, it shouldn't be there in the first place. And also, they're so knackered. When I read the stat about 18% of women who had free school meals go on to earn more than the living wage, I was like, yes, made it into the 18%. But then, of course, like, well, that's horrific. That's horrible. Because I think you say in the book as well that 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 dinner was your your one kind of decent dinner. And I was the same. And it wasn't for want of trying on my single mum's part. But however much she tried and however fast she tried to run, there was just things holding her back that she had absolutely no control over. And I guess this is so important right now as we're facing this cost of living crisis that not only have women been put back because of all the caring responsibilities that got lumped back on them during COVID, during the pandemic, but now this will be setting women back as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And do you know what? Even if you do break through that glass bread line, actually, the research shows that if you look at things like elite professions, 
it holds you back forever. So there was one study of 200 law professionals who were given CVs. They were fictitious CVs. So they were, again, matched between women and men from high socioeconomic status and low socioeconomic status. And they were asked to rate how competent they thought the men and the women were, how committed they were, and their level of fit for the organisation. High socioeconomic status men were called to interview far more than any other group. They were rated better on competence, on commitment and fit. Interestingly, high socioeconomic status women scored low on commitment because people perceived them to be playing at a career before they then go and settle down and have children, but better on competence and fit. Low socioeconomic status women were seen as committed because they were hungry, but not a good fit. And low socioeconomic status men were again seen as not a good fit. So even if you do smash through it and you reach the dizzy heights of the elite labour markets, they're still missing out on the best talent, frankly, because they're missing out on a group of people who they're not even looking at how much talent they have, but they're penalising women based on assumptions, generalisations and social class. And that's that's a problem. And I've I felt it. You know, I came from a a place where I experienced extreme poverty. And even now, I feel like, you know, that scene in um, Monty Python, where he's like, I look up at him, and I look down on him. I'm middle class. I always feel like I'm the one on the end looking up at everybody else, even if it's someone that I'm, you know, even, even though I'm doing okay now, even though I'm, you know, I've got a very, very different life now. I still feel like I felt at that time when I was growing up, in poverty and selling issue. I found it really hard to break out of that mindset. And it's in my workplace, it's made me feel like I haven't got the same worth, which is completely wrong, but it has made me feel like that. And really, I've had a lot of imposter syndrome that's crept in as a result, because I always feel like someone's going to look at me the way people looked at me when I was selling the big issue. I'm glad you brought imposter syndrome up there. Obviously, I'm not glad you have it, but we had a little chat off air about how we feel sometimes people perceive us. And I think it absolutely comes from our starts in life. I feel like I'm quite try hard. I always want to like entertain and like fucking jazz hands Noonan over here in a, in, you know, cause then people will see that I've got some worth, even if it makes me feel like putting my head in my hands afterwards. There's many things that made me kind of think about my own biases, but the one that really made me, the chapter that really made me consider my part in all of this is the chapter on modesty. Oof, Sab, oof. It's really telling (laughs) in a few ways. Like the amount of times I've talked myself down, I've talked my achievements down, the amount of times Mm. I've been told to talk my achievements down and the realisation that I have in the past, like the recent past even, even doing this for a job, definitely judged a woman as being a bit big for her boots yeah yeah and interestingly there was a study that found that women were very quick to police other women who violated the the modesty rule so men and women were asked to interview two people and one of them would pair with them in a competition to win a cash prize one of them was a very self-promoting woman the other would either be a self-promoting man or a modest man Now, women judged women who weren't modest as less likable and less appointable, whereas actually the guys chose pretty much equally, which is 
phenomenally interesting, isn't it? But this really matters. This doesn't just matter because, you know, it's not fair. This is having an impact on women's economic success. So you think about a CV, you're going for a job, you have to promote your achievements to demonstrate your competency. And so women risk either getting rejected for bragging or losing out for not promoting their achievements. And in fact, another study sent fictitious CVs to 1,372 real job vacancies. Again, the CVs were completely matched, but half of them had a woman's name and half of them had a man's name. Women were 35% less likely to be called to interview, and they were absolutely penalised for both being modest and not being modest enough. Um, And I found that... So fascinating. The same CV can elicit such a different judgment, depending on whether or not there's a man's name or a woman's name at the top. But, you know, you again, you look then at the ONS data and their human capital estimates show that men earn on average 40% more than women over their lifetime. And even with a PhD or a master's, women are still earning a third less than men with equivalent qualifications. You know, it's so mind-blowing, so mind-blowing. Sabrina, what was the range of emotions you felt while you were writing this book? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my goodness me. So some of it was um, some of it was quite cathartic and it was a bit of a relief that it's not just me. There's data that shows this. This is a thing. I'm not going crazy. And then it would range from absolutely woeful and miserable to what I can only describe as murderous rage. (laughs) (laughs) I know that one. I know that one very well. (laughs) But actually, I have to say one thing that I did feel was hopeful as well, because as much as it's frustrating, and it's so easy, isn't it, to get hung up on the frustrations and the injustice of it, but there are people doing really good work. And there are more people today, I think, that are more open to recognising their own biases and challenging themselves than there might have been even 10 years ago, you know, because that stigma is changing and we're all a bit more conscious and and self-aware of things. And I think that's a really good thing. So, yeah, it's frustrating and it's awful and, you know, it's, it's all of those things. But I also have hope because I think the change has already started. And I am really grateful that you have put that hope and some incredible ideas of how we move forward into the book. And listeners, like this could be such a dry topic, but Sabrina has made it so readable. It's genuinely a page turner, like a <laughs> in some places, which is amazing. It is out now, published by Blink and available in all good bookshops. But I'd recommend getting it from the Big Issue shop on bookshop.org, which helps to support the Big Issue and independent bookshops. Win-win. The very opposite of how it is to be a woman in any kind of career. (laughs) Sab, what is next? And is it about dogs? (laughs) Very good question. So I've actually just branched out my research to look at dogs with extreme behavioural problems who are bound for euthanasia and effective ways to rehabilitate them. Because you know I'm dog crazy. And I think the statistic I read, uh, which nearly floored me, is... (laughs) <laughs> do they know just we're talking on, about them just on schedule yeah <laughs> the statistic i read that absolutely floored me is a third of dogs that are put down that are under three are put down because of behavioral problems so i'm really interested in looking at ways that we can rehabilitate and change behavior and give dogs a second chance at life but also the families who you know really love them and will be sorry to 
to, for them not to be in the world. So yeah, I'm doing that at the moment in my spare time. So that's keeping me very busy. I don't believe you have any spare time. I think that's a lie. <laughs> I don't because I fill it full of dog stuff. Yeah, you refer to yourself as dog crazy and I'd suggest that you are dog normal and some people just aren't dog normal enough. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Where can people follow you on the socials to find out more about what you're up to, please? So I'm on Instagram under Dr underscore Sab underscore Cohen Hatton, all one word. And I'm on Twitter under at Sab underscore Cohen Hatton. I stopped using Twitter as much because the trolls were getting on my nerves. Fair play. Can we set some of those problematic dogs on them? We could do, actually, couldn't we? Maybe. They could have a <laughs> vent. That might chill the dogs out a bit, get it out of their system, sort out the trolls. I think what we could do is we could put the dogs on Twitter oh and they could just bark at the trolls. And then the trolls would obviously get the headache from being barked at incessantly which would save me having a headache from being trolled incessantly. So there you go. Patent this immediately. Yeah. <laughs> no trolls were harmed during this experiment. <laughs> oh, just a couple, but we don't care. Jimmy's come to say hello. Oh, hello. There's a little doggo. The smallest of the doggos. The little one, Jimmy Chew. Because he chewed up a pair of Jimmy Chews once. I've never let you forget it, have I? <laughs> well, you, you called him that. That's <laughs> that's, that's yeah. like me being called to stole a flump from when I was little because I licked some marshmallow <laughs> from a shop. <laughs> it's been such a pleasure. We've only touched the surface on what's in the book. So, yeah, listeners, please do buy it. It's such a great read. And as ever, just, just so lovely to chat with you, Sabina. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Standard issue for all women.